G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my two lovely co-hosts, Deet and Benelong. Today is the Tuesday, the 23rd of May, and this week's topics are, is working from home selfish? Should councils be telling landlords what they can do with their property? And then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with Benelong. And of course, as always, we'll finish off with the 4X bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, I have laryngitis and I'm very, very husky. How are you two today? Not as husky as you. <laughs> what have you been up to, Benelong? Me. Ah, just working, studying, doing this on tile, I'm married, remember? So. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got got my uh, parents coming down for a, a visit from, from Sydney. So uh yeah, just been running around getting things ready, getting things clean, just doing those those you know, trying to get through a an impossibly long list of jobs and just still trying to be relaxed about it. Because uh, you know, at the end of the day, what matters really is the the, the visit. So yeah, that's sort of been occupying my uh, my uh, my time. And uh, a spot of spring cleaning. Yeah, yeah, spot of uh, but like, I got, as these these things go, I got I opened up the opened up the container, jumped on the ride on mower, and the thing wouldn't start. And I thought, oh God's sake. And went through a bit of troubleshooting. I thought, oh damn it, it's the the battery. So ended up having to run down to the mower shop and get a get a new battery. And I thought, oh, this is good. I'm on my way. And then I pulled in. Uh, my wife had made me a cup of uh, coffee and called up. And when I pulled into the driveway, I looked at it and I thought, oh god, something's wrong with that bloody mower deck. And I had run into a post the other day and realised. Yeah, wasn't this a couple of weeks ago? Well, uh, have, you done, have you done it again? <laughs> well, I didn't know this was this was something that appears to have uh, I, I appears to have mucked up the other half of the, <laughs> the the deck. So sitting there, I'm looking at, it and I had a look under the deck. I thought, oh bloody hell! Now I'm going to have to weld the other side. So yeah, that was that was a, a bit of a a little bit of a stress out thinking that I had you know all these hours of daylight left that I was going to be able to mow the uh, mow the lawn and end up spending a couple of hours on that fixing up and welding because of course it's not my skill set. I'm very step by step by step. So you know it would have taken someone accomplished you know probably thirty minutes, but for me it was a couple of hours job. So yes, it was a bit of a a, a cold dark end of day mowing. <laughs> I would have just got an air tasker. Yeah, well, <laughs> gotten someone else to come and do it. Yeah, never put off today what you could never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. That's one. Yeah, that's right. What about you, DK? What have you been up to? I today, uh, uh, so I've been pretty crook over these last couple of days, and my voice has only returned today. Uh, and it's been sort of very weird, uh, not not being able to really speak very much at all. At all. Uh, and I thought to myself, oh, I've got a day uh, all basically all to myself. So 
for Chris, Christmas last year, I bought myself uh, a snorkel for my ute, and I was going to pay someone to put it on, but I sort of I've got all the stuff, and I thought, you know what, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a crack. I can't stuff it up that much, oh, yeah. uh, and. I did get it done. It did take me, I think they said it would take you about two and a half hours, and it took me about four. Um, yeah. And I, th- I, th- I think partly because they didn't actually say it in the instructions, but I think you're supposed to take the wheel off, and I didn't. And so that made it quite difficult trying to reach up into the guard. It was just very fiddly things like trying to reach up awkwardly where you can't see and put, put a nut on on a bolt and little things like that, just really, really fiddly. Um, and I think if you, if you, you know, like you said, if, if I took it to a shop and you did it all the time, it would be very easy for these guys and they could probably do it, you know, under two hours, I would imagine. But because I've never done it before and I'm just following the instructions, which, mind you, the instructions were very good. This was a, a proper safari snorkel from the safari snorkel company based down in Melbourne. Um, and their their instructions were really good. Uh, it's just, again, it's not something, about, something I'd done before. And it took me a lot, a lot longer than than I had anticipated. Thankfully, I did start it at like ten o'clock this morning, uh, knowing that I'd have plenty of time. Uh, but yeah, it was it was definitely a, a quite a learning experience because because uh, you know it, my next vehicle, I'll happily do it again. Um, now that I know what I'm doing. Yeah, and that's the that's the bonus of it. Now, there's there's lots of lots of things that I've been learning since we sort of moved out of the the city. That you know, the first time took me X hours, the second time took me two thirds of X hours, then half, and then you know, going down to somebody who does it all the time plus you know thirty percent time. So I yeah. can well and truly understand why you wanted to do it yourself. Yeah, and look, I, I am one of those people that is always, I'll give it a crack. Uh, look. Yep. <laughs> I, I won't lie. I did actually look up how much a front guard replacement was <laughs> before I started. Um, so you, I was going to ask you that question. Do you actually have to cut into the guard? You do. Yeah, you have to drill uh, four four like smaller holes, uh, and then obviously one really big one for the snorkel itself. Um, but they give you a template and stuff like that. I think it was more. Honestly, I think it was just me being more nervous than anything. Yep. And once I'd done it, once I drilled the holes and everything like that, I was kind of like, oh, this was not nearly as bad as I thought. Like I said, I bought this in December and I've been putting it off until now to oh. do. Um, mostly because I just was like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to cut a hole in my, in my brand new car sort of thing. Oh. So, um, but after sort of talking to, talking around and finding out that it was going to cost me a, a couple of hundred bucks to put on, I just sort of went, I'll do it when I get a day, and today was that day. So, Well done. Well, good on you. Good, good effort. Yeah. Thanks. So, I mean, speaking uh, from about working at home, <laughs> it oh, is nice. working from home selfish. Uh, and I think most people that have worked from home are going to scoff at that thought, but there are a few people that actually think otherwise and do somewhat have good reasons for doing so. Uh, let's start with a couple of quotes. 
CR Commercial Property Group CEO Nicole Duncan said, and I quote, it takes courage to address the situation and bring selfish workers at home back into the office. I think there's a real need for CEOs to take a lead on this for all of us to be working together. She continues, more as a community, the younger generation, the older generation, otherwise we're going to end up with no leaders because they're all working from home and they've got no mentorship. I think it's a real issue moving forward. Miss Duncan said this on Nine's Today Show. She said that workers had got into slow routines with working from home and that other CEOs she had spoken to said you can complete tasks from home, but you can't do your job from home. It is about long term. On the days people are going to this into the city, it's fabulous and the streets are bustling. But when everyone, everyone is working from home, those days, it's tumbleweeds, she said. Now, I can't bite my tongue listening to Miss Duncan say these things. Uh, after all, she is the CEO of a commercial office leasing company, uh, and they primarily lease office space. <laughs> so her livelihood is literally tied to the CBDs being full of office workers. Um, <laughs> so uh, ulterior motives... Uh, um, but he does raise a couple of good points. <clears throat> the one uh, is about the mentorship and the learning ability. Uh, I do think is a good one, but like we can come back to that in a minute. Uh, bosses and employees are still debating about how long workers should be in the office. More companies are pushing for employees to come in at least part of the time. Uh, numerous CEOs have argued that working from home hurts company culture, which I do think there is something valid there. Uh, and a claim that fully remote workers lose opportunities for feedback, mentoring, and hurt their growth. I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, though employee surveys consistently report that workers think they are more productive at home. So the real battle may be in reaching some form of equilibrium around more hybrid work where employees come into the office for part of the week and, uh, Set manager BlackRock, a huge investment firm, asked its employees in an internal memo to start coming in for four days a week, uh, up from free, three, sorry, arguing that remote workers missed both teaching moments and market moving moments while at home. So the pe people are going to be not happy about some of these changes. I know a lot of, of at-home workers uh, love the virtual commute. They don't have to necessarily don't have to put pants on. You can sit in your jammies all day and you can get a lot, a lot done without having to commit to heading to the office and the, the whole social aspect of that. But I do think they are missing out on the quote-unquote company culture um, and, of course, they are losing literal opportunities for 
quickly asking a colleague something, bumping into someone, at, at, you know, at, at teaching and mentoring moments. These things are real as much as the CEOs are yep. uh, kind of, you know, drumming it up probably more than is needed. Um, have either of you worked from home? I, I know Ben along, you, you've had some experience in this field. Um, yeah, I, you- look, I, I, I have, and um, the uh, you know, working as you said the 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 going going to work without your pants on. Uh, they actually asked me to spend more time at home. Well, that was a joke. I imagine <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> yeah. I've seen pictures. But, of no, I, I have worked from home. I've seen pictures of your RD and I can understand oh. why they want you to put your pants back on. It's- well, of course, you sent pictures to you. I keep sending them to you. It doesn't matter how many times I change your number, you seem to keep falling for it. Uh, you know, there's thousands of people send me their pictures without yeah. it. It's just one of the things about being famous. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, but no, and I, I, I want to hear. I want to hear Ben along on, on this because he interacts with a whole lot of people. I just essentially work for myself. So look, I've been working working from home for uh, for, for quite a while. Okay, yeah, so, I, I want to hear. I want to hear your input, Ben along. So I'm going to refer to a report written by the University of Wollongong, Marion Way, um, in 2020. Social Distancing Lockdown and Introverts Paradise, an empirical investigation on the association between introversion and the psychological impact of COVID-19 related circumstantial changes. That's the title of it, okay? Um, it takes... Right, it's over. a very long title. Right? It's a long title, but it gets to the point eventually. Okay, so it basically looks at... Um, the difference between introversion and extroversion, and it finds that introverted people actually get more career opportunities by working at home than they do in the office. So in the office, the extroverted people tend to get the career progression, tend to get all the attention. The introverted people sort of um, sit back and listen to the extroverted people. We have the exact opposite. Uh, introverted people um, in the office also, um, in this report, it says that they um, suffered more distress in the office than working at home, whereas extroverted people suffered more distress working at home than working in the office. Yeah, Extroverted people like to be around people, introverted people don't. So there are um, uh, benefits to a certain degree of people. Um, it was found in this report that introverted people actually became up to 50 to 100% times more productive when they were working at home than they were working with the extroverted people in the office who overshadowed them. Um, okay, so we look at some of the great introverts of history. Um, who is there? Barack Obama. He's a very introverted man, didn't do a great deal of press releases or anything like compared to other presidents like George W. Bush, um, but he's a very successful president. Um, who was that guy that wrote the theory of relativity? Einstein, that's the one. Okay, he was an introvert as well. Okay. Mussolini, I think. Mussolini? I don't think Mussolini was an introvert. <laughs> 
Um, it, was, it was very, very flamboyant. Yeah, uh, he wore red clothes. Um, anyway, um, so, um, yeah, Einstein was an introvert, did most of his work working from home. Okay, he didn't associate with people. He was so introverted that he didn't even finish high school. But still one of the greatest scientists that we've ever produced. Okay, uh, another introvert. Um, um, Bill Gates. Okay, he did most of his work working from home. Um, and he's been reasonably successful. So, well, that's an understatement. Um, but... <laughs> Um, he still does most of his work working from home, um, the little work that he does these days because he has other people working for him. So um, we look at introverts have the capacity to contribute to society a great deal. And according to this um, report from Marion Way at the University of Wollongong, um, introverts suffer much less stress working from home and have greater productivity. Um, for my own part, um, I'm a disabled person, so I've been working from home before um, COVID anyway. Um, I find that I actually get a hell of a lot more done. I don't waste um, an hour in the morning getting ready and an hour travelling to work every day, an hour travelling home from work every day. Um, <laughs> well, two hours travelling home from work every day because this is Brisbane and the buses don't work. Oh. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, so I have two to three hours extra productivity each day. Um, the other thing working from home, I find that I can get up early in the morning um, if I can't sleep and do my work early in the morning and spend the rest of the day studying or making monolateral planes or doing the gardening. So um, the downside is um, there is, you lose that water cooler moment. Uh, we, um, DK talked about before when you're standing around the water cooler and you have the informal conversations and you get the, um, the knowledge of other people. Um, the mentoring, I don't think is a great deal. I've been in politics for 17 years um, with a political party. Um, and my mentors include former senators and MPs. For 17 years, I've always relied on emails, phone calls, or um, video conferences. And I've got some good mentoring from them. And I've been reasonably successful in politics, not getting into um, parliament itself, but, you know, because I do have a little bit of morals about me, regardless <laughs> of what you think. But. Um, I do have a little bit of self-pride, uh, but I work in the background and I do have these mentors there. Um, I was with the Australian Democrats and there are still five former senators that are members of the Democrats. They mentored the candidates via video calls and it worked reasonably well. Okay, so I don't think the mentoring is a problem. I don't think the... Um, Working from home is a great problem, except for the extroverts who seem to suffer more stress. Um, it was found that if you work from home and you live alone and you're an extrovert, you're going to suffer a lot of stress. But just, if you're just, an introvert... Oh, just, can, can I just jump in for a moment? Yeah. Did that uh, study that you're talking about 
quantify the number of introverts that worked in an office typically or, uh, you know, worked in a business typically? Um, it didn't quantify, but other reports have stated that uh, more people are introverted than extroverted. Um, but you also have the middle ground, the ambroverts, okay, who are neither introverted or extroverted. They sort of um, change the capacity to be introverted or extroverted. They have the capacity to um, be either introverted or extroverted, as the case may be. And my gut feeling is that the majority of people are ambroverts. They're neither introverted or extroverted. Um, they can sort of be the way that the situation um, sort of says. Um, an example of an extrovert would be Steve Jobs, who is yep. definitely extroverted. Um, Ambervert would be, I'm oh, just trying to think, um, Virgin Airlines. Who's Virgin Airlines? Uh, Richard Branson. Richard Branson. Yep. So sometimes. Now, are you, sorry, are you saying ambivert or ambrovert? Um, ambrovert, as far as I understand the ambrovert. word. Ambrovert. Okay. I, I okay. just wanted to clarify the pronunciation. Uh, I may have it wrong. Let me check that. Uh, ambivert, sorry. Ambivert. Okay, thank you. Okay, I got it wrong. So too many four X's. There we go. Um, so it's an ambivert. It's someone who exhibits qualities of both introversion and extroversion and can flip into either depending on their mood, context, and goals. Okay. And intu intuitively, That's I would me. imagine in a in a in a bell curve, it wouldn't surprise me if the um, uh, if if most of the large uh, part of the bell curve was taken up with ambiverts, and that extroverts and in, in, extroverts and introverts were uh, predominantly on the tails. Um, yeah, my um, anecdotal evidence from over the years, and I'm not citing any research from this. Um, is that most people are ambiverts. They can be either introverted or extroverted yep. as the situation requires. So I think the only ones that really suffer from working at home are extroverts who live on their own. So um, it was found that introverts, um, when they live at home, uh, when they work from home and live with other people, tend not to work as well as introverts who work from home and live on their own. Okay, so um, in that respect, a lot more introverts actually got promoted during COVID. So yeah, that would make sense. Their work was actually of a greater level and it was found that their actual communication skills when they were working from home was better than the communication skills when they were um, working in the office. And actually what they had to contribute was better than what the extroverts contributed in the offices. Offices, So that was the basis of that report. So um, for my own part, I love working from home. Um, I would classify myself as an ambivert, bordering on introvert. But yeah. um, at university, I hated doing group work. Um, I generally got better grades when I worked on my own. Um, 
And I think, um, who was it? Mark Zuckerberg said the same thing, that he would prefer to work on his own than work in groups because sometimes you're just surrounded by turkeys. He, he strikes me as someone that's probably more introverted than extroverted. Yeah, I'd say psychotic, but anyway. <laughs> uh, but I'm not a psychologist, so if you're listening, Mark, I'm very, very sorry. I shouldn't have said that. It's it's uh, like I'm I'm really on the fence with working from home. Uh, uh, COVID for, forced uh, you know basically everyone to, um, and I. I sort of found it quite difficult because my office is inside my house and speaking to other people that work from home on a more regular basis, um, a lot of them had their office as like a separate uh, like building, you know, kind of like a, like a granny flat or something like that, which turned into an office. So you could kind of leave. There was that physical separation of leaving the front door, going to the office. And I think that sort of mental shift is quite beneficial for those that are privileged enough to have that. Um, I think I also struggle because I have young children who at the time also uh, were home from school and my wife was trying to homeschool them. Um, and which like she did a very good job considering uh, she is a teacher by trade, but you know, three little kids just outside my door. Uh, it, it just, yeah, it wasn't uh, a particularly good trial run of working from home. And that really put a bad taste in my mouth. And I kind of went, oh, no, I need to go back to the office. So I actually started, I, I continued to go into the office, which was fine because there was no one else there. It was, it was just me, and I, I found it quite nice, actually. So, Yeah, I Did have you, a bedroom that I use as an office, so um, we got three bedrooms in the house, and, and um, I just took one bedroom when we first moved in here and turned it into an office. Um, I've been meaning to soundproof it, but, you know, it's getting back to that sort of thing, never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. Mm sort of thing so yeah i think you both sort of struck upon one of the complexities of this issue is it depends and that's the big thing it de it depends on what suits the individual person it depends on their psychology and in, in some ways too on on physiology but it depends on the psychology it depends on the type of job that you're doing and it depends on uh, whether you're producing what you're being paid to produce, because ultimately you're you're only employed if you're producing more for your employer than what they're paying for you. Otherwise, why would you be doing that? Uh, so I don't think there's an an easy answer to it, and nor do I think that there's a, an answer that you can just do an across-the-board rule and say that people need to be, you know, pushed into working back for the uh, the five days a week or that people need to be having the, you know, the, the five days a week off. I, I agreed with you. You'd made that comp. You touched upon the uh, commercial property group CEO 
and what her interests might have um, been with you know, getting people back into the city. She's got the uh, incentive to churn people to create the money and create the, the, the flow. But there was also a comment by uh, Elon Musk. Uh, he had an interview earlier in the week, might have even been a week ago now, where he was talking on this issue and he said the laptop class, which I think is an interesting description of uh, the the new work-at-home office people, uh, he said the laptop class needs to get off their moral high ground and uh, – pardon me, that my alarm went off. The laptop class needs to get off their moral high ground with regards to, to people working from home. And he was referencing that uh, people are happy to work from home, but they still expect to have services and goods delivered to them. So I can understand the argument on the morality, and morality in, um, in, in quotes, of that approach. But at the end of the day, it comes back to, are you doing your job? Are you giving your employer more, a little bit more than what they're, they're paying you in value, so making it worthwhile? It, I, think it's a, I think it's a very difficult question to resolve, and it seems to be, post-COVID, uh, a new conundrum for both employers and employees to deal with. Yeah, look, I think this is going to be a case of uh, I, I don't really hold much credence to what Elon Musk said because there's always been a class divide between office workers and service employees and things like that. And there always will be because it's a different type of work. Um, but, I he, you know, he, and he's also coming from this because he fired a bunch of Twitter employees that will all work remotely and all sorts of stuff. You know, he's he's very his comments are very loaded from his own point of view and his own personal philosophy. Mind um, you, he also didn't he also didn't seem to have paid much of a penalty for firing all those people. Well, no, well he sort of did because a bunch more, a bunch of the ones that he wanted to keep left as well, and it. It, he had to reverse it, and yeah, it was a whole mess for for a bit there. Um, but I do think this is going to be individual. Pe I think you both have highlighted some really good points for pros and cons, and I think this is going to basically end up being what works for your workplace and what works for your employees. Because at the end of the day, you know, I think everyone's everyone at least here and probably many people that are listening have had really shitty bosses that yep. dictate terms. They're not open-minded about anything and they just make your life bloody miserable, you know? And they're, they're wanting their own little empire and they're wanting, they're wanting people to, they're essentially wanting serfs to run about worshipping their bossness. Exactly. And like, that's obviously a terrible way to manage people, to run a company. Um, not to say that there aren't some very successful companies that aren't, you know, that are run this way. But, you know, some of the smaller companies that have really high standards of employee satisfaction 
run them in ways where they give they give people that flexibility. What works for you? What do you like? What don't you like? Um, and how can we? You know, some of the points that uh, were brought up by uh, Nicole Duncan about not being able to problem solve, not not being able to uh, mentor, not being able to troubleshoot and audit their employees. These are all problems with an existing workplace culture that isn't willing to adapt to the change. And I think that's really important is working environments change over times and the simple fact is a lot of these employees don't need to be in the office. Not so all the time. Said, you said, well, I, I, I agree with you that not a lot of them, a lot of the time they don't need to be in the office, but willing to change. No, no, no. Uh, like the companies aren't will, are willing to to change their management styles. So that right. she goes, oh, well, I can't mentor you if you're not in the office. And like Ben Along said, well, why can't you make a Zoom call? Why can't you make? Why can't you pick up a phone and make a telephone call? It's because it doesn't suit the way that she wants to mentor, mm. and that's fine. But the reality is, these are things that can come can be overcome. I, I do remember at the start of COVID, a lot of companies for years and years and years saying, "Oh, we can't work remote. It's not possible." You know, it, it literally can't be done. And within weeks, it was done. So there's a lot of this company culture, management style stuff uh, that doesn't necessarily hold true in the real world. And I think some of these firms are going to be outcompeted by companies that do have more flexible working environments. You know, we, we, we've seen over the last few years that particularly younger workers don't have much loyalty to their employers if their employers don't value their work and them as a person. And quite frankly, no one should. So people are jumping around. And and if you're looking at between two different companies, I think people would even take, take a small pay hit if it meant they could work remotely, at least partially. Um. My neighbor actually, so I'm in Southeast Queensland. My neighbor works for a company in Melbourne. She works 100% remote. And oh, she, right. she, she wow. attends a number of meetings a year. They fly her down. They pay her. They pay to fly her down from here, uh, down to Melbourne for, for larger company meetings. But she's been doing that for years. And it doesn't harm how she works. She works, as far as I know, uh, like good long hours, does a good job, is paid really well, and she gets the benefits of living in a beautiful part of the country and not in shitty Melbourne. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, it can be done, but obviously, not every workplace, not every employee, uh, it, it's and not every job, it's not going to work all the time. And I think this is where no, you know it's no, it's worth having this conversation. But I also scoff at the idea that CEOs are all running around there having their CEO breakfast meetings with each other, just whinging about how employees don't want to come to the office. Because quite frankly, most offices suck. <laughs> Why would you want to spend any time there if you can avoid it? Yep. Yep. 
there's, there's, been, there's been a number of people I've worked with over the years that I would have been happy not to have seen at all. And if I had the option of not having to interact with them uh, for four out of five days a week, I would have jumped at the chance. Just on the Elon Musk thing, um, I did actually read something on Twitter about one of the uh, major shareholders in um, previous shareholders in Twitter. He said, "Ah, oh, Elon's a godsend to me. We sold the company to him for $43 billion and we can buy it back next year for 43 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll believe that when I see that. And then, uh, <laughs> I believe it when I see it, yeah. It's not worth $43 billion now, believe me. <laughs> no. Speaking no, of unbelievable things, yes. should local councils be telling landlords what they can do with their property. I mean, they kind of already do. But, of course, uh, we're talking about there have been calls for local councils to push landlords to make vacant or holiday homes available for long-term renters. So your older Shire count, uh, mayor, sorry, Matthew Hatcher last year wrote to the New South Wales South Coast Holiday Home owners begging them to put their unoccupied houses onto the rental market. Some of them did, but a lot of them didn't. Uh, but that kind of got the ball rolling. So very recently, the Real Estate Institute of Australia, their chief executive, Anna Nilagama, used the National Rural Press Club address uh, this last Tuesday, uh, sorry, last week Tuesday, so a week ago, to call on councils across the country basically to do the same thing. Uh, she said that around $60 million has been allocated for the new National Housing and Homelessness agreement, but we should use a small amount of that money to contact all the ratepayers in Australia through different local government areas and get them to seek any empty or latent homes to come back into the permanent rental pool. Helen Haynes, an independent minister for the regional Victorian electorate of Indy, was also at the National Rural Press Club address, and she brought it up, a really good point. She said that there, basically we need more basic infrastructure to enable more housing developments in regional areas. Basic infrastructure like functioning sewer systems and drainage mm. are all needed to open up more regional areas. And local councils simply don't have the funding to do this by themselves. But this just highlights why it's probably a good idea to follow the Euro, Euro Della Shire's, Shire Mayor's lead and use local council powers to push vacant property owners to lease them out long term. We... You know, ultimately, we have a we have a rental crisis, and it's only getting worse, especially when we consider things like the recent nat nat natural disasters, like the bushfires of 2020, and the increasing amount of flooding we've seen all across the country. 
in I think basically every state and territory. Uh, we need more homes and we need them now. But we've also got a lot of homes that are built, that are vacant and could be used. These, there's a lot of properties that are only occupied for a very short period of time. There's a lot of properties that are basically, you know, they're holiday homes or, or they're in the Airbnb rental pool. Um, and they're just, they're all connected to services. They're, they're empty houses. And this could definitely help solve the rental crisis. Now, uh, Deep, I can hear you <laughs> foaming at the teeth already. Uh, oh, yes. To yes, tell yes. the local councils where to stick it. Uh, but before I pass this over to you, I just did want to say, I'm not, I'm, as much as I've just said all, all of this, my personal opinion is, you know, landowners have the right to do what they want with their property. If you want to sit on 10 houses and do nothing with them and have them completely unoccupied and fall apart, so be it. That's your right as a landowner. Yep. As long as you pay your rates and everything like yep. that, so be it. The other side of that is I do know that there are, you know, previously I had an Airbnb on my street and I can tell you I've talked to my neighbor who, who owns the property uh, and she said the reason it was an Airbnb and not a long-term rental was because the Airbnb rates were just so good that they uh, beat the long-term rental rates. I don't think that's the case anymore, at least in this area. Long-term rental rentals prices have gone through the roof, and there's hardly any of them. So... Any house that comes on gets leased, you know, within a within a couple of weeks, sort of thing. So, it it is one of these things. I think I don't. We definitely should not have the local councils tell people what to do with their properties. But I do think there should be some sort of compromise where maybe we need to incentivize some of these houses to go from these uh, short term rentals to become more long term rentals to help with this problem. I don't know what that looks like, but I do think that there's, there is some value in what these people are saying. If I fundamentally disagree with them on a political level. So Adi, yeah, how about look, it? I, I, it? It's probably not going to come to any surprise, not going to be any surprise to regular listeners to know that I'm 100% against some estranged group of bureaucrats telling somebody what I can and can't do with my own property. That's you know, a, a bottom line for me. Uh, in On sheer principle, I, I cannot support this in any way whatsoever. That's a principle. Let's work work out what we've what we've got here. The uh, call for houses. Uh, to yeah, you know, to be provided for the, the the rental and that, the I noticed in an article by where were we? It was I think it was an ABC yeah ABC article uh, by Jess Davis, sixteenth of May on the ABC, and in that the Real Estate Institute was pushing for this, and it echoes 
what we were talking about before with the working from home when we were talking about the CEO of the uh, commercial property group pushing, wanting to push for people to come in. It's a bootleggers and Baptists type of situation. And for people who aren't familiar with that terminology, uh, we've got a Wikipedia article, bootleggers and Baptists is a concept put forth by regulatory economist Bruce Yandel derived from the observation that regulations are supported both by groups that want the ostensible purpose of the regulation and by groups that profit from undermining that purpose. So when we have something like the Real Estate Institute pushing for these properties to be forced, and let's accept that it's actually landlords being forced to do a what bureaucrats think they should be doing with their property. Uh, we have something like the Real Estate Institute wants to have people pushed into that because they benefit from it. You also have the uh, people who are wanting to you know, genuinely help people who are struggling in this re- rental crisis. We, you know, there's there's no doubt about it. We are currently in a, a rental crisis, and that's the that's the reality of the situation. I'm not. A, I don't know what the solution is. I tend to be a very strong believer in market uh, market forces, but uh, we do have to recognise that there's more than one side involved in in actually pushing this regulation and and gaining from it. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what you have to to think better along. You seem to be a little bit more on uh, my side or point of view on this DK and this. I don't think bureaucrats are really the ones to be telling landlords what they can and can't do with their private property. I can't. (laughs) I laughed because you said you could almost hear me bristling in the background or whatever it was you said. And I wasn't, I was thinking this just, this just frustrates me so much because it's wrapped up in this, this package of of caring and that, but ultimately it's just it's just state control. Yeah, without getting I, 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 too I, I, much like in that. What 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 do you think, Benelong? Well, I agree with you. Um, councils are the last people that should be making decisions about anything. I mean, they're less qualified than MPs or either state or federal. Um, basically, and that's saying a hell of a lot. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's the <laughs> very highly qualified. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> I had a discuss with his office during the week, and he said I read and writing bad things about him on Twitter. So Peter Dutton is a very good man. He's a great man. He was a great police officer. <sighs> <laughs> I made another beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so councils are basically popularity quests. I mean, they're not qualified people. They don't have any... Most of them don't have any political experience. Most of them have no management experience. Um, and a lot of them don't... Can, can, I, just, can I just interrupt? Just interrupt briefly. We had one candidate down our way, and look, I can't remember his name. I wish I, wish I could. And his platform from the local council is, I'm new to this. I know absolutely nothing. If you elect me... 
keep in mind that I will have no idea whatsoever about going on, uh, whatsoever about what's going on. I believe in this, that, and the the other, but I have no experience and will very likely not know at all how to to serve you properly. Vote for me. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I think half the politicians in federal parliament could have said the same thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, but um, to be fair, some of them do work their way into the jobs. Um, I know there are others amongst us today that um, don't particularly like Jackie Lambie. Um, she got in there, she fucked up pretty well to start off with, yeah. but she's doing pretty well at the moment. So she's worked her way into the job. She's been willing to learn. Um, then you have the Greens. Hey, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the Greens are fantastic, you know. They, they make all these promises, no, they're never going to have to deliver on them because they're never going to be in government. So, <laughs> But people still vote for them. Um, like the dog, now, you, you sort of wonder what happens if the dog ever catches the car. Yeah. Well, what are they going to do if they ever get elected a party? They're going to say, shit, now what do we do? Uh, yeah. I mean, if they ever get elected to the government or even opposition, I mean, well, they couldn't be much worse in opposition than the current one is. But oh, council, yeah. council they, they do not have the capacity, most of them, I won't say all, I know quite a few good councils and mayors. Um, some have been former bank managers, some have been uh, former CEOs of companies. Um, but the majority of councillors um, just really don't have what it takes, um, even less so than what state or federal MPs do. So um, I don't think it's all just about Airbnbs. There's a report back in June yeah. in 2022, um, 87,000 Queensland properties are empty despite rental shortage. Okay, so these are houses that are not on the market, so they're not included in the 1% um, vacancy rate that we have in Queensland. There's 87,000 Queensland properties that are empty, according to the census. Yeah, because they're all owned by Southerners who use them as holiday homes. No. Um, Majority of them are owned by overseas investors, Especially uh, in one large country of where's Pauline Hanson? Yeah, we need to no, get Pauline no, Hanson no, on this. No, 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 no. This is true. Um, <laughs> in, um, many of them are owned by the largest country in the world, largest populated country in the world, for the simple fact is, which is India at the moment. So I understand it. Yeah, it is India. It is India now. It's uh, not China no, anymore. I would never say anything bad against China. No, Chinese investors um, own majority of these houses, just over 60%. So, and they're leaving them vacant to push property prices up. Um, there is a conspiracy theory, which may or may not have some... Um, merit, um, that they're deliberately leaving the properties vacant to push the prices up um, to cause distress for our economy. Mm. If that 
conspiracy is true, then it's certainly working. Uh, I certainly don't believe that any foreign government, even a hostile foreign government, uh, would have that sort of money to do that. Um, but um, there are 70 million members of the Chinese Communist Party um, and they are generally the richest people in China. <laughs> so, um, Oh, that's a, co- that's a coincidence. I, I do think it's uh, – in China, you can't invest in anything other than property. The Chinese stock market isn't isn't open for public trading. So – you you only have property, so it doesn't surprise me that there's a lot of Chinese people in Australia or have ties to investments in Australia, and they're buying property because that's what they know. That's that's, that's what they understand. Well, and that's how that works. There is an argument for that. Um, that that's their like their superannuation because there's no superannuation scheme in China. Um, you can't take more than ten thousand dollars out of China at one given time unless you're investing in property or companies outside China. So, yeah, yeah, well, that is the Communist Party rules. You can't take more than $10,000 at a time, as I found out when I came back from China after three years, seven months, two weeks and four days there. So um, I tried to bring $40,000 back from China, even as a foreigner. I could only take $10,000 out a month. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, yeah, um, then I believe since then they made it more difficult. Um, when I came back to Australia, I just took 10000 out a month and that was all right. I believe they have made it more difficult now that even if you're a national or um, an expatriate, um, if you've left China, you have to go back to China to transfer the money from China. And you're 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 obviously talking about in um, business uh, business amounts of money rather than anything uh, um, you know, personal, personal personal against your your yeah. your income. So yeah, but if you invest in a property or you invest in a business yeah. in, um, overseas, then you can transfer that money uh, through Hong Kong. So that's reasonably easy. Um, Hong Kong used to be an independent country. I still believe it is, but anyway, that's another argument. <laughs> the CCP disagrees with you. Oh, hang on. I've just got an email from the CCP. Um, no. <laughs> and along with Anthony Albanese and um, oh, I can't remember who it was we mentioned before, they are reg- they're regular listeners to the – that's right, Elon that's Musk. Right. Yeah. yeah, Elon Musk. So uh, one little interesting thing I came across, uh, a little historical fact for you, when, when I was sort of researching this um, topic was – in 1948, the Victorian Minister for Transport, Sir William Kent Hughes, urgently required migrant workers for the Victorian Railways. Since they had to be accommodated, he reasoned that they must bring their own house on their back. Hence, he created Operation Snail. Uh, <laughs> And the snail houses, as they came to be called, were designed in Melbourne for Australian conditions and standards and mass-produced in the form of kits, pre-cut and assembled timber components, which could be speedily erected in the field by a small and largely unskilled labour force. 
there was a range of 44 types of two, three, and four-bedroom houses that would be assembled from the same basic kits, enabling a wide range of site layout requirements to be met with correct orientation and monotonous repetition avoided. Within a year... Within a year, this housing project was producing houses at a rate of 40 per week. Uh, And other government departments soon joined the scheme, leading to over 5,000 houses being erected on specially developed estates and individual sites throughout Victoria and New South Wales. I I need to remember, and I can't stress this enough, this was in 1948. Eight, you know, yeah. this sort of building is pretty commonplace today, where a lot of houses are at least partially prefabricated and arrive on site. Like you know, most frames in that now are built in a factory. They arrive on site. You know, you get your roof on all sort of winter that in the day. Um, but these entire houses, they were mostly made of wood, uh, but. You know, I think we've done this in the past. We've done this in our history. There is no reason we couldn't do something like this again. There's just no political will for it. But but this could be done. It could be done tomorrow. We could start building houses. The only problem is, and I guess the difference between now and then is that... Uh, Safety regulations? Well, I don't know that there's enough, like, land to just knock up you know, 5,000 houses in the outskirts of Melbourne without uh, ruffling some feathers. Um, Bloody hell, you should see uh, how many estates and that are just being cranked out on the outskirts of Melbourne. I, where I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down on the Mornington Peninsula, but uh, you know, I, re- re- I travel up around the east southeast area. And the amount of land that's just being cleared that over the you know over a period of just a few years is just filled with houses. And I've also got mates up the uh, the northeast and northwest uh, top of of Melbourne, and they're just they're just bloody pumping them out. Yeah. It's 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 amazing to me how quickly. They're getting some of these things out, and how much land is, and and what they did down here. I'm not sure what the situation is up in Queensland, but uh, it, they changed how they value your land. So uh, it was, from memory, happy to be corrected, but from memory, it was uh, a, a change that it was assessed on the potential value rather than the actual value of your land. And suddenly, if you were anywhere near the outskirts, then your land tax just jumped up enormously because they said, well, look, you may be able to build a whole lot of houses here. Therefore, that's your land value. And consequently, a lot of land had to get sold. And I can't understand how it happened, but a lot of that went to developers. Mm, That's a bit cheeky, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, my bottom line is I don't think council should have any say in how landlords, um, what they do with the house, but I think the federal and state governments, particularly the federal government, needs to come in and look at foreign ownership of houses, especially the ones that are sitting empty. Um, Census night last year, there were over one million properties sitting empty. 
Um, that could have been because uh, sales going through, uh, because of COVID, whatever. But um, around Australia, there are over one million houses sitting empty on census night. And um, the discussions I've had with various MPs and senators um, seems to be that uh, we're not going to go on record as saying this, but we believe it's because of foreign ownership. Yeah, right. Um, well, we're not going to solve this problem tonight. So, um, but that's just my gut feeling that there is a lot of um, foreign investment, not just Chinese, but uh, foreign investment from over other countries as well. Um, you know, and as you said, yeah, there's a lot. There's superannuation. You know, they invest the money there because they can't invest in their own countries. So. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of Kiwis that have property in the Gold Coast, I've noticed. They seem there's to love, they love the Gold Coast. There's only four million of them. You know, 500 million, <laughs> four million Kiwis, I mean. <laughs> half, of, half of Queensland is Kiwis, I think, at this point. Um, speaking of uh, the Victorian Minister for Transport, Sir William Kent Hughes, and his plan in 1948 that was very successful... What other successful historical events have happened this week in Australian history, Benelong? I don't know. Um, <laughs> 17th of May. 17th of May, 1928, the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia made its first official visit from Clon- first official flight from Cloncurry to Julia Creek. So 1928 on May 17th, the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia started which is the first of its kind in the world, and it has been copied all around the world since and is still running strong. Long Curry to Julia Creek, that, that's like really close. That's not very far at all. Yeah, but it's 1928. Planes couldn't fly very far then. Oh, yeah, not, yeah, you're not wrong, but that, that, yeah, that's like 100 kilometres. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm just surprised. I thought it would have been further, but... Hmm. But you're, you're right. I mean, it's amazing that the plane made it that far, I guess. Yeah, well, I had to eject the um, patient on the way, but um, apart from that, um, <laughs> um, no, they didn't. Sorry. Anybody's listening, I'm just bullshitting. Um, well, I'm actually I'm interested to know what sort of plane they used because there weren't many planes that could take, like, a stretcher or something at that time. Did they strap him underneath or something? Um... It was a bi-wing plane, um, de Havilland DH-50. Does that mean anything to you? No. Ah, oh, the, <laughs> DH, the, the, DH, the DH-50, that was the, the first dual, dual prop um, uh, plane for the, the rural sector. And I oh, think no, it actually... I think that was 1931, sorry. Oh, no, sorry, I got, got that wrong. I got it wrong. Um, no, I don't know. <laughs> that's that's okay, I was crapping on anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, your props, so. Um, this must have been, like, it must have been like a Qantas plane or something like that, wasn't it? I think it was a privately owned plane, but it wasn't called the Royal Flying Doctor Service back then. Yeah, uh, okay. It had a different name. Um, uh 
I think it was part of the Australian Inland Mission. Yeah, right. No, that's all right. I'm putting you on the spot here, so I apologise. Yeah, I'm 62. We clearly don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell us anything. Yeah. Um, just because I've been in politics for 17 years doesn't mean I tell bullshit. Um, <laughs> if I get elected, maybe. Um, so 1996, on May 17th, Bob Belair is appointed to the District Court of New South Wales, becoming the first Indigenous Australian judge. 1996, that's how long it took us before we got an Indigenous judge. Wow, that's a bit, That's yeah, that's a bit sad. Yeah. Um, um, oh, this is one close to my heart. Um, in May 18th, 1974, in the electorate of Benelong, huh. John Howard entered Parliament as opposition backbencher. <laughs> oh, the, the great <laughs> gun thief. Yeah. Uh, let's not start on that. Uh, no. <laughs> Mr. So, Mr. Eyebrows himself. Yeah, sorry. Look, I won't. I won't get. I won't get into the the. the, uh, the we did the, that last gun, week. Gun we did that last week. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, I did not take my name because of John Howard being the local member for that electorate. So it was because of my association with the Aboriginal people. Oh, really? So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's cool. um, I'm not saying I dislike or like John Howard, but the first one was probably closer to the truth. So, (laughs) May 19th, 1861, Dame Nellie Melville was born in Richmond, Victoria. We know Dame Nellie Melville, DK? No, doesn't ring a bell. Uh, One of the greatest competitors of all time. No, yeah, doesn't. I got nothing. Oh wow! Okay, all right. I, I thought just thought that might have rang a bell. It was uh, she was opera, wasn't she? Yeah, she was an opera singer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, I'm I'm up your way, your guys' way uh, later in the the year for an, for an opera. So we'll chat about that another time. I think now there's some karaoke opera. <laughs> <laughs> See how that goes over. So, um, 1942, the CAC Boomerang, an Australian-designed and built fighter aircraft, takes to the air for the first time. I think it was the first Australian-designed and built fighter aircraft. Yeah. That was 1942. Yeah. Um, it went all right. Went all right? Yeah, it went all right. It yeah. wasn't like, you know... It's no Spitfire, but they went all right. Uh, when the uh, alternative uh, is nothing, <laughs> you know, it's... Um, what was the best of the it, it was the best we could do with what we had, and it was all right. It wasn't, like I said, you know, it wasn't great, but it wasn't completely a waste of time. So, and yeah, but To its credit, it always came back. Yeah. Well, it was called Boomerang because plane wings are actually designed along the same uh, scientific principle as the Boomerang. So yes, the boomerang, they are. 
yeah. which was invented 8,000 years ago by the Australian Aboriginal. Yeah. So who were the first to realise that um, that design made them actually fly better. There is a bunch, of, a bunch of them that survive and are still flying. Occasionally you'll see them at... Um, uh, like you know the Royal Melbourne Air Show and, and things like that. They'll um, and, and I think there's a bunch of them that are being restored as well. So, um, okay. Anyway, moving right along. So, in 2002, May 19th, the 19th Prime Minister of Australia, John Gorton, died at the age of 90. Okay, May 20th. 1941, the a Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission report calls for an apology for an early government policy of removing Aboriginal children from their parents and placing them in institutions. Okay, and I, um, I can't recall exactly when the apology was put forward, but Peter Dutton walked out on it. So. Yeah, and he did recently say that he was sorry about it, and then when they brought the voice to Parliament, he walked out on that as well. So I feel like, you know, if anything, he's being consistent. Yeah, consistently racist. Um, yes. Sorry, Peter, if you're listening. No, I'm not sorry, Peter. I'm um, sorry. Um, he knows well, what he's doing. At least he's getting his steps up. He's <laughs> <laughs> getting his steps in for the day, walking out of Parliament. <laughs> Okay, uh, May 21st, 1962, the Commonwealth Electoral Act of 1962 received assent, granting all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people the option to vote and enrol- to enrol and vote in federal elections. Only gave them the option. Okay, it wasn't until 1967 that it was put into the Constitution so that they could actually vote. So they had the option, if you want to vote, you can vote. Um, a lot of people didn't um, because they were worried about um, feedback or whatever. Um, anyway, um, So that, that means in 67, then it became compulsory. If that became uh, in, put into the Constitution, presumably... That met the same the same rules, which which meant it was compulsory. Is that is that correct? Um, Nineteen sixty seven. It was put into the constitution that they were classified as Australian citizens. Prior to nineteen sixty seven, they weren't. Um, and the census are classified as livestock. So, which is uh, just fucking disgusting. <laughs> yeah, and that is a. Damn good reason to use that expletive and why we have that little E for explicit. Uh, it's not often used, but oftentimes it's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my personal favourites on May 21st, 1999, eight decaying bodies were found in barrels in a disused bank vault in north of Adelaide, yeah. marking the beginning of the Snowtown murders, murder case. Ah, uh, yes. Which involved quite a lot of people. They were all brought to each other's social security benefits. Uh, one would say, come in and help us kill this bloke and then you can get part of his social security benefits. Hey, we haven't got enough money, so let's kill you instead and we can get your social security benefits. Oh, it's a very complicated case. So. 
it, there's a really good film about it called Snowtown. Um, I think it was released, uh, I want to say like 2010, something like that. Um, it's full on, like they, they don't pull any punches. Yeah. Uh, but, but if you if you haven't seen it, it's worth watching because, like you said, this 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 whole case is very intertwined with different people and how it all worked and and all this sort of stuff. But the film does quite a good a good um, job of sort of breaking it down and yeah, it's full on. Yeah, I remember. I knew a wine maker from a region around there, and I remember he tapped a cast that he had, and I said, "Whoa, that's got a lot of body." Oh, stop! Ah, <laughs> oh, go and wash your mouth out. <laughs> okay, um, one I did miss on May twenty first, nineteen seventy five. The greatest rugby league footballer and boxer of all time, Anthony Mundine, was born. Okay, well, let's leave that one. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Moving on. Okay, May 22nd, 1856. The first Parliament of New South Wales was opened by the Governor Sir William Denison and, of course, we still have Fort Denison. Don't we, DK? Uh, did I? Is Fort Denison still there? Uh, I didn't think it was still active. No, it's not. We don't have any, like, uh, I don't know. I'll look it up. Okay, so that's sort of that one. Um, May 23rd. That's today. Oh, okay. 1912. Oh, sorry. I've, I've looked it up. That was quick. Uh, the port in Bowen, Queensland, uh, is, is named after him. It's a commercial board. I don't think it does a lot, though, because Bowen's not huge. So, uh, but yeah, it is. It is named. He also has uh, a, a state electoral division in Tasmania named after him. That's right. Tasmania is still a state, isn't it? Yes, for now. Okay, minority government and in shambles. <laughs> it is. It... <sighs> okay, May 23rd, 1912, Walter Burley Griffiths design for Canberra was selected as the winner and this is why Canberra is shaped the way it is. Actually, it works quite well. It does. He did a really good job, I think. Yeah, it was based on Washington, D.C. Yeah. So, and... I've got... I've got I went to... I might have told the story before, but I uh, went to Canberra oh, a number of years ago and... <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, they've got the, the, the Arboretum up there and part of that is one of the original cork oak uh, plantations... Uh, from when Canberra was started. And apparently what happened was that uh, Walter Burley Griffin, when he was looking at uh, Canberra, decided, well, these guys are going to need cork. And when he went back to Melbourne, he grabbed some acorns, took them up to Canberra and uh, planted the the cork oaks. While I was up there, it was uh, during the, the season where they dropped a whole lot of their acorns. Collected a whole lot of them, put them in my pocket, 
I mean, there were there were thousands of them on the ground. Sprouted them. No, no, no. You're a thief. We get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty popular, <laughs> well, yeah that's that's right. No, I did. Oh, well, I did. I did Confessing his crimes here. <laughs> and and now in my uh, my yard, I've got uh, five, actually six cork oaks. Two have grown together. Uh, six cork oaks that are from the cork oaks that Walter Burley Griffin grew in Canberra. And I've brought them back down to, to here, and they're about three years away from me being able to string up a hammock between the two of them. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And that will increase your land valuation, so you're going to get the extra 0.5% in the budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. Well, May 23rd, 1944, John Newcomb, the greatest tennis player, male tennis player, in history, because there are two better, Ivan Gulagong and uh, Ash Barty. Yeah. Um, a better, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Margaret Court, she can go and get stuffed. Um, so, 1994, on May 23rd, Alangelo State Forest serial killer Ivan Malat was arrested oh, at his New oh, South Wales home. Well, that was later sentenced to life imprisonment, and while in jail, he cut off his legal finger in protest of being kept in solitary confinement. And nobody gives a shit. Yeah. And now I, <coughs> I actually have a per, a personal connection to this. He, um, my my wife's grandfather remarried, uh, like thirty years ago. Uh, and his new wife, uh, she knew the Malats, and she used to babysit Ivan Malat's like nephews and nieces, uh, and she would be at like family barbecues and things. And sometimes Ivan would turn up, and she said to me, she knew. Like, everyone had a suspicion that it was him when all these murders were going on because he was wow. such a weird guy. She said, he made my skin crawl when he walked in. And he never he never really hung around too much. He wasn't a big family guy. But when he did, when he was around, she said it. he was really disturbing. And when all these murders started happening, she said to, like, you know, other friends that she reckons it was probably him. Had no proof or anything like that, you know. Uh, but of course, once it was found out that it was him, she was like, "Yeah, hmm. thought so." Mister um, Scarlet List. Yeah, probably. I imagine so. I don't think he was on there to start with, just because he was a friggin' weirdo. <laughs> but um, and of course, his nephew uh, infamously tried to recreate some of his murders uh, in the same same locations uh, and thankfully was caught, caught after his first murder. So some in the water down there, I think. Yeah, well, I come from gold, but it's only an hour away. Um, yeah, anyway. I blame fluoride. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, hang on, hang on. Better long, aren't you from Goulburn? That's what I just said. I come from gold. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. So, um, yeah, we were actually in the um, 
SCS at the time, and um, when they found the first couple of bodies, um, we set up. We were doing the food for the um, uh, providing the food for the police that were um, out looking for them. They had the um, piglets. I'm sorry, police cadets from the um, <laughs> academy. Um, they had them all out there searching to get the extra manpower, and um, it was actually quite eerie. So. Yeah. So um, I've been there many times before, and I never realised how deadly quiet it was. Um, I don't know whether the birds and the animals all went away because everybody was there or because they knew something bad had happened. I don't know. But it was just deadly quiet. There was no birds. There was no animals around. It was just deadly quiet. Maybe it's because a thousand people trampling through the bush. Um, uh, the Bushfire Brigade were um, part of the search, but the SCS mainly were just doing the um, preparing the food and providing meals. So, a not lot a bad thing, though. And not not a bad thing to get out of, if I'm honest. Um, so now that's deeply disturbing. Tell us what uh, your forex bottle top says. Um. Okay, so let me have a look. I've just got to wipe the um, water off. So, in what year did Australia first tour England in cricket? Oh, shit. First tour England in cricket. Ah, oh, isn't this, like, really... Also, I don't watch cricket. I don't know anything about cricket. Um, you want an easier one? Like, like cricket trivia, I should say. Uh, I'm going to guess that it's really early, like... 1910. Oh, wow. I was I was thinking something like 1850, but then I'm thinking, well, Australia or England and that, probably they wouldn't have had. Okay, you know, so it's later right. than 1850 and before 1910. Oh, really? Oh, well, maybe it was for Federation. Is it for 1901? Ooh. So like a Federation celebration. Oh, oh, come on. We can get a quiz show going here. Um, it's earlier than uh, 1901. Oh really? So before no. Federation. So when did they they started they started talking about I'm going to say eighteen ninety four. Eighteen ninety four? No. Earlier than that. Oh really? Is it eighteen ninety? No. I'll put oh. you out of misery. It's eighteen sixty eight. When was it? Sorry, you you, you bleeped then. Go again. Eighteen sixty eight. 1868. Wow. Yeah, but Australia wasn't a country then. Uh, it was the, the colonies. <laughs> um, wow, that's so much earlier. Gosh, it must have been yeah. such a journey to get there. Um, yeah, I believe it took several months to sort of travel there because yeah, um, Connors were on strike at the time. Huh. <laughs> of oh. course. This reminds me of the great, great Donald Trump, who said <laughs> during the um, Americans, American War of Independence, um, the Americans destroyed all the airports so the British couldn't land there. I mean, he, he's technically not wrong. <laughs> He's just an idiot. <laughs> um, oh, oh. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. 
Um, All right. Well, and on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at at proton.me. Otherwise, join us for next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. And hopefully next week, my voice will be back. Okay, bye, y'all. Good night.